Let's hear God's word from the Gospel of Mark, chapter 16. We're going to jump in with verse 7, where the young man, the angel that the women have encountered at the tomb of Jesus, is speaking to them and giving instruction and says, But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. So they went out quickly and fled from the tomb, for they trembled and were amazed. And they said nothing to anyone, for they were afraid. Now, when he rose early on the first day of the week, he appeared first to Mary Magdalene, out of whom he had cast seven demons. She went and told those who had been with him as they mourned and wept. And when they heard that he was alive and had been seen by her, they did not believe. After that, he appeared in another form to two of them as they walked and went into the country. And they went and told it to the rest, but they did not believe them either. Later, he appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table, and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart, because they did not believe those who had seen him after he had risen. And he said to them, Go into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. He who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Amen. We'll end our reading there in verse 16 of Mark chapter 16. Let's once again ask for God's help in prayer. Our gracious God and Heavenly Father, as we come to this portion of your word, we beseech you to bless us with the understanding, the mental alertness and sharpness that we need to be able to follow the teaching of your word and what we need to know. But Lord, as we hear in this passage of repeated unbelief, even on the part of your disciples, we pray that you would spare us from that. May we receive what you have for us this morning as the word of God in truth. May we embrace it into the deepest parts of our heart. And Lord, we pray that there it would take root downward and bear fruit upward, that we might be fruitful in faith for the glory of our God. In Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. God has preserved his word. God has preserved his word for our instruction, for our admonition, so that we would be equipped with everything that we need to serve God as he has ordained us to do in this world. Now, When we say that God has preserved his word, we do not mean that there is some miraculous manuscript of God's word that has no mistakes. In the ancient world, when books were made, of course, they had to be handwritten. And then, of course, they had to be hand copied. Now, the kids who are currently in catechism classes can let you know that when they copy out a question from the catechism, it's easy to make a mistake. It's easy to skip a word. It's easy to misspell a word. And so when they show me the catechism questions they've copied, the reality is that I sometimes find mistakes in these manuscripts. Now, This was true with all ancient manuscripts, and this is true of the Bible as well. There are many, many, many manuscripts. There are many handwritten copies of the scriptures, and of course right now we're speaking especially of the New Testament. 
there's an enormous wealth of evidence for what does the New Testament say. It exceeds by leaps and bounds what you will find for any other work from antiquity. We have works that we know from one or two or two and a half manuscripts. And then there's the Bible. There's the New Testament where there's over 5,000. Most of the New Testament, if not 100 percent, 90 plus percent, could be reassembled just from its quotations in the works of the early church fathers. There's papyrus, there's vellum, there's parchment, there's little texts engraved on silver, like you might have a verse or two embroidered in a frame on your wall or in calligraphy or something like that. Well, there's bits of scripture carved into silver as well. There's translations into a multitude of languages. There's Old Latin, and there's Aramaic, and there's Coptic in a couple of varieties, and so on and so forth. Why do I tell you all of this? Well, I want you to see that God has preserved his word, not in one miraculous manuscript, but in an enormous multitude of sources. Now, this comes up specifically when we're looking at Mark chapter 16, because depending on the translation of the Bible that you're using or depending on the specific edition, you might find that there's a little note around verses 19 through 20. Some versions will put them in brackets or they'll have a little footnote and they will tell you that these verses, Mark 16, 9 through 20, are not found in all of the manuscripts. That's true. There are especially two manuscripts called Sinaiticus and Vaticanus that do not have them. I actually have a printout here, and I sent it in the email before worship, of the end of the Gospel of Mark from the Vaticanus manuscript. It's also known as B, uppercase B, which is held in the Vatican Library. And if you want to talk about this afterwards, if you want to ask me about it, if a lot of people ask me about it, we'll go over it in Sunday school, if not today, some other day. But you can see that there's, it's the Gospel of Mark. You can see that the words stop, that then there's a little legend that means according to Mark. And then there's a whole blank column, which is very unusual because these manuscripts were extremely expensive. And if you look at it, you can tell it was done with a great deal of care. And yet they left it blank. So in that manuscript, Mark stops with verse 8. I want you to be aware of these things so that you're not surprised, so that you're not rattled. This is what we would expect. The human body of Jesus was subject to vicissitudes that come along in this life, and yet he was nonetheless divine for that. The church is preserved by God, not in one perfect congregation that never makes any mistakes, but in the conjunction of all the people of God throughout space and throughout time. And the word of God is preserved not in one miracle manuscript with no mistakes where the copyist never got tired and his eyes skipped a line or something, but in the plethora of witnesses. So if you happen to be reading a commentary or you happen to be listening to a sermon series from another church or whatever, you will find that there are even people who are reformed who come to these verses, and yet they won't preach them. 
although these verses are found in the vast majority of manuscripts. Well, we're not going to do that. We're going to go ahead and consider these verses. We're going to take them as the word of God. We're going to see what God will teach us from them. It's not because I'm unaware of that this is missing, but I acknowledge, I believe that God has preserved his word and that the number one place where God has preserved his word is actually in the usage of the church because that's who his word is for in the first instance. Now, I don't want to spend a lot of time on this kind of introductory thing because I actually want to look at the words and what they mean and what they tell us. So again, if you have questions or concerns about this whole area of textual criticism, I would be very happy to speak with you about it after the service. If a lot of people have questions, I'd be very happy to devote a Sunday school class or two to this whole very interesting, very intriguing, and highly technical topic. I would like you to know that I don't want textual critics to stop doing what they're doing. I want them to do more of it. And I want them to tell us all about it. And I want them to use every tool they possibly can. Right now, there's this sort of new thing going on where they're taking rolled up manuscripts from Pompeii and they're using new digital imaging approaches to be able to read these manuscripts. You can't unroll them anymore. They'll fall apart into ashes if you try. But using advanced technology, they can read it without unrolling it. I think that's wonderful. And I'm very excited to see what they will discover as they continue with this whole process. I don't want people to stop with the whole work of textual criticism. But in the meantime, I'm going to continue to use my Bible. And I'm going to use the whole of my Bible as it has been handed down to us through the church. Again, questions about that? Happy to take them afterwards. So with that by way of introduction, so that nobody's caught off guard if they come across any of these footnotes or comments anywhere else. What are we supposed to learn from this part of God's word? Well, as I noticed last time, as I pointed out last time we were in the Gospel of Mark, there's an emphasis on unbelief here. You see it with the women who come to the tomb and speak with this young man, this angel who's there. They're given a commission and they go away. Their initial reaction is they're very afraid. They're not speaking, they're not sharing the good news, they're overwhelmed with emotion. Well, then the Lord Jesus appears to Mary Magdalene. Now, of course, she had a special connection to him. She was particularly grateful to him because he'd cast seven demons out of her. So in a sense, we're not surprised that she was preeminent in her devotion, in lingering around the grave until, as we read in the Gospel of John, she saw him, thought he was the gardener, but then recognized him when he spoke her name. Well, she was the first person to see the risen Lord, the first human disciple at any rate, maybe I should say, to see the risen Lord. And so she told the others, but they didn't believe her. And then the Lord Jesus appeared to two men. You remember they were on the road to Emmaus and they didn't recognize him right away. They didn't recognize him until he blessed the meal that they'd invited him to share. And then their eyes were opened. They could see this is actually Jesus, but he vanished out of their sight. Well, they hurried back to Jerusalem and told the other disciples, but they were not believed. Now, this raises an interesting question. These are disciples. These have been followers of Christ. Officially, 
They are believers, and yet they are believers who are not believing. That would be more of a mystery. That would be harder to understand if we didn't have such a good commentary on it in our own hearts, in our own experience. Are you a believer in Jesus? Yes, you are. You're here. You make that profession of faith. But do you always believe? Do you always believe everything? Not right away. Sometimes it is a struggle. Sometimes the fiery darts of the wicked one get through our shield of faith. Maybe our shield of faith is a little low. We're not holding it up as high as we should be. And we do encounter doubts. We do go through skepticism. Now, you're not going to hear this very often. So I'm just going to let you know I'm going to use my wife as a bad example, and that's almost never going to happen. Years ago, when we were first married, money was tight. Yes, it sometimes is. I'm sure people can relate. And Heidi called me at work, and she was concerned there was some bill coming or something. And, you know, in my cheerful, flippant way, I said, you know, God can send us money out of thin air if he wants to. And she was experiencing a little bit of skepticism. She kind of scoffed at that. I mean, she didn't make a big deal out of it. So she hung up with me and, I suppose, went back to worrying. You'll have to ask her exactly how she handled that. And then she got a call from an insurance company. And before we'd been married, some one of their customers had run into her while she was driving. And the insurance agent just wanted to close the case down, so he mailed her a check. She believed, we believed that God could provide, but it was still kind of a surprise, you know? Because we hadn't necessarily followed the general belief that God provides through into the specifics. God will provide what we need in this situation, at least not all the way. We had some lingering skepticism. We had a little bit of cynical doubt about the Lord's provision. Well, the Lord showed us. He can indeed send you money, so to speak, out of thin air. Well, what was true in our case with regard to money, you can apply that to a host of other things. We are believers, and yet we're not perfect believers. There's doubt. There's unbelief mingled in with our belief. We have confidence in God and in his word, and at the same time, we don't. That is part of the pattern of the Christian life. What older theologians would have called the habit of faith is there. We're disposed to believe. We're oriented to believe. In a general way, we believe. But the act of faith, believing in this moment, on this promise, well, that's not as consistent, is it? We can kind of go up and down in that one a little bit. I think that's what these disciples were experiencing. They believed in Jesus. They trusted him. But now they're being told he's risen. That's a big pill to swallow. That's not an easy thing to just say, oh, okay, great. I believe it. It does take the Lord's help to believe what the Lord has told us. And so in the weakness of our faith, we wrestle with doubt I don't mean to say that that's a good thing. I don't mean to say no big deal. I do mean to call you to wrestle. Work on that faith. Ask God to strengthen your faith. Practice believing the promises 
exercise your faith. But don't despair. Don't conclude against yourself when you find that you do have struggles with doubts and unbelief. That doesn't mean you're not a believer. It means that you're a believer who's not yet perfect. Welcome to the club. Now, that belief sometimes needs some help, or the unbelief needs some strong medicine. After the disciples had not believed in light of various reports, they'd heard from Mary Magdalene, they'd heard from the two men on the road to Emmaus, and yet they were still not believing. They're still sitting around not believing the gospel because the good news of the resurrection of Christ is the gospel. Well, then Jesus himself appeared to the eleven as they sat at the table and he rebuked their unbelief and hardness of heart. Now, he didn't say, you're all unbelievers. You can no longer be my disciples. Get out of here. You don't even need to meet in this upper room anymore. He didn't scold them in that way. He didn't get rid of them, but he did rebuke them in the sense that he called on them to surrender their unbelief. He identified the true cause, hardness of heart, reluctance to receive the report from the witnesses because it seemed too good to be true, because they were afraid of having their hearts broken again, whatever may have underlaying it, what it turned into was resistance to God's word coming through Mary and the other women coming through the two men who had been on the road to Emmaus. So there is a place then in the Christian life for us to be rebuked for our unbelief. Now that's not because I can make you believe harder by scolding you and yelling at you for the weakness of your faith. I mean, we could try, but I don't think it's going to work. I can yell. Does that change? Does that overcome your doubt? I'm not saying there's no place for rebuke, obviously. I'm saying there is. But it's not because the scolding fixes it. The Lord Jesus called them to repent of unbelief, pointing out that it was connected to hardness of heart. So he's challenging them basically with the question, why don't you believe? Well, that's a good diagnostic question for us. Why don't we believe? Now, if you say, well, I don't believe because God hasn't promised. Okay, then good for you. Keep not believing. Because believing where God has not spoken, believing where God has not given a promise, that's not faith. That's actually presumption. That's holding God to something he hasn't committed to do. Well, how would you feel if somebody tried to hold you to a promise you never made? That's not going to fly. That's not going to go over well. Why would we think that we can hold God to promises he's never made? But maybe there is a promise and you have a hard time believing it because that doesn't seem like how things have worked out in the past. Or that seems like it's too hard for God to pull off. Or that doesn't seem like it matches the general pattern of your life where nothing ever goes your way and your prayers are never answered. Other people's are, but not yours. 
I'm giving a few illustrations of things that come up. There, there could be more things that you might think of if you ask yourself the question, why don't I believe this promise of the Lord? Well, whether it's self-pity, whether it's just weakness of faith, whether it's skepticism, whether it's look at how things work out in general, whether in my life or in the world or wherever it may be, that can lead to a sort of hardness of heart where God's word comes, we perceive it, we hear it, but it doesn't get in. We keep it on the outside. That deserves rebuke. The Lord Jesus is the perfect pastor. The Lord Jesus doesn't just get frustrated with people and let them have it because he's had enough. If the Lord Jesus rebuked them, it was because they needed it. It's because that was good for them. And our unbelief also sometimes needs to be rebuked. Sometimes it can be rebuked by God showing that our unbelief was groundless. That's probably the most pleasant kind of rebuke to receive. But then God sometimes also rebukes us with, we hear an exhortation, somebody else shows us a better example, somebody specifically calls us out. Or sometimes we're rebuked through more difficult circumstances, through trials. Our faith that was weak and flickering is put into the fire so that the impurities can be leached out. Because if we're focused on the wrong thing, if we're looking to figure out how can God keep his promise, instead of considering the God who keeps his promises... It's easy for us to slip away from faith into practical unbelief. We wouldn't say we don't believe, but it's not really very deep in our hearts. It's not really making much difference in our lives. But notice this. What does the Lord Jesus do with his unbelieving disciples? Well, he reclaims them. He recovers them. He rebukes their unbelief. And by the time he's done, guess what? They believe. Now they're sure. Now they know. If the Lord rebukes you for your unbelief, it's not because he's against you. It's not because he's upset at you. It's so that your faith will come back up into exercise, into strength and activity. The rebukes of our unbelief that we receive from the Lord are a mercy. They are a sign of his commitment to us. Because there's also a different kind of unbelief that's mentioned in this passage. In verse 16, when the Lord Jesus says, he who believes and is baptized will be saved, but he who does not believe will be condemned. Now, the unbelief that's spoken of here is not a faith that struggles to embrace everything that God has promised. It's not a faith that is temporarily obstructed by some hardness of heart. This is a terminal unbelief. This is an unbelief that persists. This is a rejection of the gospel. And this sort of belief is catastrophic. This sort of unbelief, excuse me, is catastrophic. Now, this verse, of course, has raised some questions. Some groups have used this to argue that unless you're baptized, you can't be saved because 
regeneration, being born again, happens with the application of water. Now, that's not accurate. That's not how it works. So why does Jesus say, he who believes and is baptized will be saved? Well, think about it this way. In Mark's context, of course, where the majority of people coming into the church are not going to be children of church members, but are going to be new believers coming in from outside who have never been baptized before, making a profession of faith and being baptized are going to go together most of the time. Now, it's very easy for anybody to say, I believe, but are you willing to commit to be Christ's disciple? Is that something that's deeper than just from your teeth out? Because lots of people will believe, quote unquote, from the teeth out. They'll say they believe, they'll say they're Christians, but will they identify with Christ? Will they publicly commit to be his disciples? So if somebody believes and does not have the opportunity to be baptized, sometimes it happens that an infant is stillborn or passes away very early in life, and parents sometimes grieve themselves thinking, oh no, my child wasn't baptized. Yeah, but it's not baptism that confers salvation. They didn't need the water in order to be born again. They needed God's covenant promise. Or it could happen somebody later in life, they have a deathbed conversion like the thief on the cross and are not baptized. That's okay. We, uh, we understand that there are those exceptional circumstances. But if somebody says, yes, I believe, and I've never been baptized, and I refuse to be, oh, then no, excuse me, but you don't believe. I actually do not have any confidence that you believe because you're refusing to do the first, the logical thing. It wouldn't necessarily be baptism. And in our society, where, of course, a lot of people have already been baptized, it might appear in other terms. Well, I believe in Jesus, but I'm not going to go to church. Of what kind, then, of what quality is your belief in Jesus? Is it the sort of belief where you say to him, you are Lord, but I'm going to disobey? I remember seeing a video of a woman who came up to a Christian booth at a fair. They were passing out Bibles, that kind of thing. She grabs the microphone from one guy and she says, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. I'm a Christian, but I'm not going to stop sleeping with the men I date. So you're a Christian, but you're not going to obey. You say Jesus is Lord, but you're not going to do what he says. That's not belief. I think that's why Jesus associates baptism with belief here, because genuine belief will make a difference to what you do. Genuine belief will make a difference to how you live. So he says, if you believe, not just you say you believe, but you really believe, there's proof of that in how you act. Those who believe that way, oh, they will be saved. And you can see another evidence that it's not baptism per se that's the decisive factor here when he says those who do not believe will be condemned. He doesn't say those who are unbaptized. He puts the point where it needs to be. Do you believe the gospel? If you do, you're saved. 
Now, if you genuinely believe the gospel, you will also try to obey the Lord Jesus. But if you genuinely believe the gospel, you are saved. But if you reject the gospel, if you don't embrace its teaching, if you don't look to Christ alone to save you, you will be condemned. There are no gifts, there are no privileges, there are no advantages, there are no works, there is nothing that can substitute for belief. Faith is the only instrument by which we receive the Lord Jesus Christ and all his benefits. If you do not believe in a risen Lord Jesus, you are currently under condemnation. And that status of being condemned will not change until you believe the gospel. Next time, Lord willing, we'll look at how that gives urgency to the commission that the Lord gives to his church. But for today, having considered the reality of ongoing unbelief in our lives and of the fact that this kind of unbelief is completely catastrophic, can we do any better than to end with the prayer of that afflicted father who brought his son to Jesus for healing? And Jesus said to him, do you believe that I am able to do this? All things are possible for those who believe. And the man said, Lord, I believe. Help Mine unbelief. He knew he was a believer and an unbeliever at the same time. He knew that his faith was not everything it should be. Well, if you've been rebuked for the persistence of your unbelief this morning from God's word, if you're struggling with doubts, if it's hard for you to embrace all that God has said, if you have never believed until this moment in time, oh, turn to God with the prayer. Help. Mine unbelief, that's exactly what you see Jesus doing in this passage with his partially believing disciples. He is helping their unbelief. Well, let's turn to him that he might help us in the same way as well. Amen.